Well, thank you, Eric. <clears throat> I always like getting down here in time to share some worship with your community here. I'm Pastor Brian. I'm usually at our South Street campus, and I was there this morning, but happy to be able to step in when Andrew and his wife and family are away and lets me rest. So, good morning. It's too bad we weren't preaching on uh, Jonah, I mean, uh, Noah. I meant to say Noah. Noah this morning, because of all the rain this morning, it would have been a perfect illustration for the, for the sermon, but we're not. Well, when I was a freshman in college, <clears throat> way back last century, um, I signed up for a two-year course called Humanities. Now, that makes no sense, uh, the title, but it was actually a two-year series of classes, one after the other, that combined history and philosophy and um, literature and religion all in one. The idea was you got all those credits required for a liberal arts major by just signing up for one class. And I thought, that sounds kind of a painless way to get all those credits done, so I signed up. The very first humanities class fall of my freshman year was on ancient literature. And the very first week, as I recall, we were assigned to read two things, Beowulf and the Epic of Gilgamesh. How many of you have any idea what those are? Have you heard of those? Well, at the time, I had no idea what those were. Um, Beowulf dates from the 6th century and is an epic story in poetic form of a Scandinavian hero named Beowulf. I was kind of surprised it was a guy. I thought it might be like an animal. I'm Beowulf, you know, who killed a monster called uh, Grendel and killed a dragon later. Pretty cool story. Uh, so I got, got that part. And then the Epic of Gilgamesh is much older. It comes from like 2000 B.C., also an epic poem uh, about a king from Mesopotamia. And the details of that have long since faded into history. I have no idea what that story is about. And at that time in my life, again, I'm 18 years old, first year in college, I don't think I'd ever read a book, any book, all the way through to the end. I mean, like I read newspapers and Sports Illustrated and yeah, pretty much that was it, going through high school. So the first assignment was to read those two ancient books and then write a four-page paper on ancient, uh, on heroism and ancient literature. So I thought, okay, heroism. I, 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 know, I know what uh, heroes are. I know about, you know, Superman and Batman. And I had personal sports heroes, you know, like Jerry West and Pete Maravich and stuff. So all I had to do was figure out how these guys, Beowulf and Gilgamesh, were heroes. And the professor was this ancient man. He, was, he literally was in his 80s because you, can, you, can, you have tenure, you can teach forever. He'd been teaching forever at the school. Wore, he was old school, wore a full suit and tie every day in class, lectured in this really quiet voice. You had to really strain to hear him. Um, but the rumor was that if you just uh, spelled your words right, you'd do okay in his class. He was a stickler for spelling. So if you could write almost anything, as so long as you didn't, you, you didn't make a lot of spelling mistakes, you were going to be fine. So I thought, cool, I can do that. I'm a pretty good speller. At least I thought it was, and went to work in my first college paper ever. I was going to nail it, right? Studied as much as I knew how at the time, uh, came up with all my thoughts on ancient heroism, wrote down in my handwriting, handwritten four-page paper on heroism. A few days later, professor hands the papers back, and I was shocked, because I really worked hard. I sh was shocked to see the big red D on top of my paper. First college, I got a D. How am I going to tell my parents? I got a D. And then I saw all the circles in red throughout the paper. Turns out I had misspelled the word hero 13 times in four pages. H-E-R-O-E. Like a sandwich, turns out. You know, sometimes when you're writing, a word just feels right you know, just, or it seems wrong. Well, that was some reason it seemed right to me. And I got a D. Well, we've spent all summer uh, talking about heroes 
uh, in the Bible. We're in a series from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 called By Faith. And chapter 11, if you've been with us, uh, is a, a bunch of little snippets about the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Now remember, and this is important for today, remember why this letter to the Hebrews was written, why it's in our New Testament. It was written to encourage uh, ancient, first century, Jewish background followers of Jesus not to give up their faith in Jesus because they were under great pressure and persecution to give it up because people didn't understand it. Uh, the writer is saying, don't give up your faith in Jesus. Jesus is greater than everything else. He is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God. And so far we've looked at Abel and Noah and two weeks on Abraham, last week Isaac and Jacob, and now we move on to our next hero in the story. Gen uh, Hebrews 11, verse 22. Let me read it for you. I'll put it on the screens too. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, if you know anything about the story of Joseph, you should be going, wait, 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 what? That's it? I mean, we have 14 whole chapters in the book of Genesis about just the story of Joseph alone. He's one of the most um, iconic, heroic figures in the entire saga of the Old Testament. And we get one verse in Hebrews about the Exodus that he didn't even lead and his bones. So what's up with all this? I think we start today with two little assumptions. First, that the writer of Hebrews assumes that his readers all know the story of Joseph. They were Hebrews, after all, and they knew what we call Genesis backwards and forwards. They knew all the stories, so they knew about Joseph. Secondly, we can assume that the writer of Hebrews mentions these two things specifically for certain reasons, and we're going to dig in and try to find out what those reasons are. We're going to talk about three things this morning. Joseph lived by faith, Joseph encouraged by faith, and Joseph died in faith. First, Joseph lived by faith. I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoy and love seeing stories of people who overcome great odds to accomplish things. Maybe we all love stories like that. But just this past week, I saw this little story about a young woman named Carson Pickett. Did you see her story on the news? She's a, a, a young woman born without the lower part of her left arm, and she uh, recently made the United States national soccer team. She'll play in the Olympics for her nation. Incredible story, inspiring story of how someone overcomes what appears to be a limitation and chases a dream and realizes that dream. It's an amazing story. Or maybe the more familiar historical story of someone like Abraham Lincoln. You may know the rough outline of his life, born into poverty, a self-educated man, experienced a number of business and political uh, disappointments, experienced devastating personal losses in his life. Lost his own mother when he was nine years old, uh, lost a sweetheart. Uh, Ann Rutledge, when he was 24 years old, uh, lost two sons early in life. Edward was three and Willie was 11 while he was in the White House. Suffered from severe bouts of depression throughout his life, but overcame all that to become one of the most respected and revered presidents in U.S. history. So what do we know about Joseph's life? First, let's remember where we are in the Old Testament story. This is after the flood and uh, the Tower of Babel happens, and God confuses languages. He needs to bring salvation to the world, so he chooses a man through whom to bring a people through whom to bless the world. 
And that man is Abraham. We looked at his story. Uh, God gives Abraham a great promise, a covenant promise, Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Blessings all over the place. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And Abraham passes this covenant on to his son Isaac. Isaac passes it on to his son Jacob. Jacob passes it on to his son Joseph. And that's where we are in the story. Now, we also know that Joseph grew up in a rather complicated family. He was the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob's two wives and his wife's two servant girls. You got that right, okay? Jacob has 13 children, 12 sons, one daughter, born to four different women. Now, that's a whole topic for a different sermon sometime. Um, at least we can say it was a complicated family. We know that Joseph was Jacob's favorite child because he was the first son born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And so it seems that Jacob uh, actually, uh, that Joseph actually, excuse me, Jacob actually repeated the favoritism that was in his family. Remember that uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, preferred and loved Esau more, and Rebekah loved Jacob more. So he's repeating the same favoritism, which is, always ne- which is never a good idea in a family structure. Jacob makes no secret of his special love for Joseph by giving him the famous coat of many colors. You know, the Technicolor dream coat, if you've ever seen the show. Um, it was just a, a sign that this is my favorite. He didn't give any of the other brothers a similar coat, and the result is they resent their brother for his favorite status. We see this story in Genesis 37. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. There it is right there. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We also know that Joseph had an unusual ability, it turns out to be a gift from God, to understand and interpret dreams. And when he shared his own dreams with his brothers, things get worse. Genesis 37. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Maybe he should have kept that one to himself, maybe. (laughs) His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so if you know the story, you kind of know what happens next. Let me summarize. His brothers decide to kill him. Then they change their minds and decide just to sell him as a slave to some Midianite traders. So he becomes the first ancient example of, that we have in the Bible of human trafficking. The Midianites, in turn, sell him to an Egyptian high official named Potiphar. But Joseph serves Potiphar well. And eventually, Potiphar entrusts him to run his whole household. We see this in Genesis 39. And when his master, that's Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. This is a, an Egyptian now, not seeing the Egyptian god, Ra, the sun god, but seeing the Hebrew god in a Hebrew man. Interesting. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. But the Bible also says Joseph was well-built and handsome. Exactly the words. Joseph was well-built and handsome, like Pastor Andrew. 
You can tell him I said that. He'll get a kick, he'll get a kick out of that. And Potiphar's wife eventually tries to seduce him. Um, Joseph, was, however, was a man of great integrity. He refuses her advances, fleeing from her, fleeing from the temptation. And then she reacts to his refusal by accusing him of what we would call sexual assault today. She makes an accusation. Her husband Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. So Joseph is punished unjustly for doing what is right in the eyes of God. So we know that by faith Joseph endured injustice and hardship, was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, was falsely accused, thrown into prison. Joseph endures all that by faith. But that's not what Hebrews 11 focuses on. None of it. We also know that Joseph, by faith, prospered greatly in Egypt. He languishes in that prison for some two years, but while he's in prison, he continues to serve others, continues to be a man of integrity, interprets the dreams of a couple of his uh, fellow prisoners, and eventually a new pharaoh, the pharaoh of the time, uh, likely the historical figure uh, Sesostris III during what's called the Middle Empire of Egypt, the real historical guy, he has his own set of disturbing dreams, and he's heard through the grapevine that there's this Hebrew guy in prison who has a gift. So he calls Joseph out of prison. Interesting, the Bible says he, uh, he got a haircut and shaved and put on clean clothes because he was just languishing in prison. And he asked him to interpret his dream. Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Again, not the Egyptian gods. In whom is the spirit of, the God, of God, the Hebrew God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So this is an astonishing rise to prosperity. Rise is the second in command in all of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world, almost unimaginable wealth, unimaginable comfort, unimaginable power. And then he leads Egypt through seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. And due to his wise and shrewd management, uh, uh, Egypt not only has enough food to survive themselves during the famine, but enough to provide much of the whole surrounding region as people come looking for food. Eventually, this includes, includes his own family, his father Jacob, all his brothers who come to Egypt to avoid starvation. So we, so we see that by faith, Joseph prospers. He saves his entire family. And then we see by faith he eventually forgives his brothers for what they did to him years before. By faith, Joseph sees God's hand in it all. The famous words of Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All this Joseph did by faith. But Hebrews 11 mentions none of it. None of it. So what does Hebrews actually say and why? That leads us to the second point today. Joseph encouraged by faith. He encouraged by faith. I was preparing this week, and I can't remember how I got onto the, <laughs> the miracle of the Internet, but I found these lists of people's famous last words. Just pick a few of them. Okay. Uh, for example, the last words of Winston Churchill. I'm so bored with it all, he said. Kind of weird. The very sad last words of a Hollywood actress, Joan Crawford, don't you dare ask God to help me, she said. That's sad. Harriet Tubman, known for leading uh, former slaves to freedom through the Underground Railroad, was singing with her family 
Her last words were, swing slow, sweet chariot. That's more hopeful. Hero of 9-11, Todd Beamer, who lived in Wheaton, we all know, let's roll. So what were Joseph's last words? The writer of Hebrews says that Joseph's last words were, says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. First thing we might notice is similarities between what was already said about Jacob and Isaac at the end of his life. All three of these men were talked about at the end of their lives. The writer says Joseph says two things before he dies. He mentions the exodus and he gives directions about his bones. And clearly the writer's choosing these two things of all the other things he could say about Joseph. So they must be important. Why? Let's go back to the story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, here's what I noticed there. Did you see twice Joseph says, God will visit you? First, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, he's reminding them of God's original promise to Abraham. He's encouraging them by faith. How so? Well, to understand, we have to remember a couple of things. Remember that God had made the covenant promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, to give his descendants a land that we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, and then to bless the world with salvation through him. Second, we need to look back at what God said just after he gave his covenant to Abraham. In Genesis 15, we read, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, because he's already promised to give them a land, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I think Joseph knew both the covenant of God, the promise of a land, and he knew that before the descendants of Abraham would inhabit that land, finally, they would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs, and they would be afflicted for 400 years. But Joseph also knew that God would visit them, and God would deliver them. So Joseph has reached unimaginable success. He's been able to save his whole family, and he's been able to save countless others from famine. But he's speaking here as a prophet. He's looking ahead. He's saying that even though life in Egypt is good now, and it was good for the Hebrews while Joseph was in charge, that was their guy up there. That was their guy taking care of them. They had enough food. They were being blessed. But he says it will not always be so. 400 years of affliction are coming. So when Joseph says, God will visit you, he's prophetically pointing toward what we call the Exodus. He wants his brothers and his descendants to know three things here. First, Egypt is not their home. No matter how prosperous they are now, no matter how affliction may come and how long it may stay, no matter how long they are in Egypt, Egypt is not their home because God has promised. Secondly, he wants them to know that the affliction of slavery is not their final destination. 
Now, we know that after Joseph's death, another pharaoh came to power uh, who did not remember Joseph and who feared the population, the growing population of the Hebrews and decided to enslave them as a workforce, Exodus chapter 1. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, this was likely Pharaoh Ramses II, again from history, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now this bondage in Egypt lasted some 400 years. And Joseph knew this time of affliction was coming. But he says, thirdly, God will visit you. God will visit you. Now, we know the story. We'll start looking at it next week when we start looking at the story of Moses. God calls Moses, tells him to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God sends 10 plagues, culminating with the angel of death and the whole Passover story. And God delivers his people. So with his dying words, Joseph is encouraging his people by faith to trust the promise of God. And that leads us to the third point. Joseph died in faith. He died in faith. Now, over the years as pastor, I've done lots and lots of funerals, graveside services, and I know that quite often families have made plans, and they have a plan to have a loved one buried in a family plot or a certain place or maybe in a military cemetery. I've done all those things, but I also pay attention over the years to just, just strange requests for interment. I know it's a bit of a gruesome topic, but I think you'll enjoy this. Have you, do you know the name Gene Roddenberry? Somebody know? Who, oh, more people here know who that was. I didn't know who it was, but he was the, the creator of the TV show Star Trek. But did you know that in 1997, his ashes were among the first human remains to be shot into space? Makes sense, right? He was not a believer in God. He was an atheist, but he thought somehow that would get him closer to the universe or something, but it turns out they just burned up in the orbit when they came back. Um, did you know the same company that shot him into space exists today? It's called Celestis. You can go to their website. And if you want part of your remains to be sent into Earth orbit, it'll cost you about five grand. But if that's not far enough, if you want to be launched into deep space, you can do that for about $12,500, just in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> but have you ever heard of a guy named Frederick Bauer? <clears throat> Pretty sure you don't know who this guy is. This guy is the inventor of the Pringles can. Some of you are wondering why I have a Pringles can with me today. Okay, he invented the can in 1966 to help Procter & Gamble ship their new chips without using bags. Got a patent for this can. I think it made him rich. But anyway, when he finally died in 2008 at the age of 89, his family, agreed, his family carried out his request. You got it to have some of his ashes interred in a Pringles can. I just wanted to freak you out. That's just <laughs> chips in there. <laughs> Hebrews 11 says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, what exactly were those directions? have to go back to Genesis 50. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here, so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin 
in Egypt. So what's going on here? Why does this matter so much that this is one of the things, one of the two things that the author of Hebrews pulls out of Joseph's life? Joseph's dying. He's achieved incredible position, power, authority, wealth, success in Egypt. He's stayed in command, second in command, for like 60 or 70 years. For more than half his life, he had that position in Egypt. But he doesn't want to be buried there. He doesn't want his body to be entombed in some fancy pyramid, which is what they would have done for a guy of his stature, right? He doesn't want to be shot in outer space. He wants to be taken back to the promised land. Again, that's 400 years away, remember. Now notice the Bible says his body was embalmed. There are only two people in all of Scripture where the Bible says they were embalmed upon death. Joseph and his father Jacob, because they died in Egypt. And Egypt's way of doing this was what we would call mummification. It took 40 days to do this process, and they did it with Joseph because they were going to cart him away. He needed to be portable, easily moved. All right? Why? Why does he say this? Three reasons. First, Egypt was not his home. Just as he told the people, Egypt is not your home, Egypt was not his home. He knew it was his assignment. For most of his life, by faith, he understood God had placed him there for God's purposes. He also knew that Egypt was not his home. His home was the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, he trusted the promise of God. Joseph knew the promise God had made to his great-grandfather Abraham, and that Abraham had made to his grandfather Isaac, and Isaac had made to his father Jacob. And he trusted that God would do what God promised he would do. But thirdly, and I, I, this is what, I dwelled on this a lot this past week, and this is just me trying to figure out the importance of this, this text. I think Joseph wanted his bones to be a symbol of hope. Stay with me here. So some 400 years later, when Moses finally leads the people out of Egypt, again, that story starts next week, the great Exodus, we read in Exodus 13, Excuse me, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. I don't think I ever noticed that before. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Later, after that, after Moses dies, and Joshua takes over. Now, this is 40 years after that. In Joshua 24, we read, and Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for 100 pieces of silver, this became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And that means that for all 400 years of enslavement to the pharaohs that followed, uh, that came into power following the death of Joseph, for all those 400 years, the Hebrews kept track of the bones of Joseph. They kept track. That means when they left Egypt in the middle of the night after the angel of death passed over their homes, they carried the coffin of Joseph with them. That means when they wandered in the desert for 40 years following the pillar of fire at night and the cloud of smoke at day, they carried that coffin with them. Imagine with me, how many times does someone say, hey, why are we carrying this thing again? Why are we carrying this box of bones around? Or how many times a child asks their parent, who's Joseph and why is he in the box? I think Joseph knew that if he allowed his bones to be put into a pyramid in Egypt, if he allowed his bones to be entombed in Egypt, the promise of God could be forgotten. 
he did not want the promise to be forgotten. If they kept his body above ground, if they kept his bones in a transportable coffin, if they promised to take it with them, then they would remember the promise of God to his people. Even in death, I think Joseph wanted to proclaim his faith that was God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does it mean for us? What can we possibly take away from this strange little verse? Well, I'm pretty sure that most everyone here in the room already knows and knows by personal experience that life will bring both hardship, unspeakable hardship, and sadness and pain, and great prosperity, joy, and health. All those come in one package with our lives, right? And sometimes the promise of faith can be seen, can seem very, very far off. And sometimes we can't really see it. It just seems far off. And maybe you're in that place now or have been recently, or maybe you will be someday soon. And through this one verse, this one strange little verse in Hebrews, I think Joseph is reminding us, more importantly, God is reminding us that this is not our home. That this is not your home. Because in a way, we're all still living in Egypt. We're strangers and exiles here. We have another home we were created for. Your destiny is not what's happening to you right now. Your destiny is not whatever suffering you feel or whatever prosperity you're experiencing now. Not here. Not in this life. Joseph is reminding us that God will visit you. And we know from our perspective that he has. He has visited us. In Jesus. Now remember the purpose of the letter of Hebrews. It was written to encourage people to hang on to their faith. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That Jesus is our hope. That Jesus is our destiny. And when we come to the end of our days, He is the one who takes us home. He will take us home. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this strange, single little verse that points us back to a man of, of great faith who trusted you in hardship and suffering, who trusted you in great prosperity, and who even in his death points us to the great promise of our faith that you will visit us, that you have visited us, and our destiny, our home, is in Jesus. We pray these things in your name.